0: Tonight we're talking about the great doctrines of our faith and their relevance for our lives. We are talking about uh, how uh, our belief uh, in these truths uh, that we believe, that we build our lives and ministries on, our families on, how they affect our day-to-day living. And we will experience that to a large degree tonight because what we're talking about, the doctrine of the church, is something that we experience uh, in, in weekly life, and, and so uh, this is extremely uh, relevant for our um, lives. And so we've talked about the doctrine of God, we've talked about the doctrine of Christ, we've talked about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we've talked about the doctrine of humanity, we talked about the doctrine of salvation, now we're talking about the doctrine of the uh, church. And the church plays a major role in the unfolding uh, story of Scripture, and we need to understand what the Bible actually Says, And by the way, the, the Bible does say some stuff about the church. It's not to be this kind of free-for-all where we make it up as we go along. The Bible has some guidelines uh, f- for the church. And we'll see that together tonight. And so when we say church, we need to define that uh, word on the very front end. Because defining this word biblically will help us to understand what this word is all About. So look there in your notes, definition of the church. The word church in your Bibles, your English Bibles, comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones. The called out ones. This word is also used in the sense of an assembly of people, a group of people assembling uh, together. So literally, the word church means called out assemblies, people that are called out by God, called to salvation in Christ, that get together. And so, a church is a body of baptized believers in Jesus Christ who have voluntarily, that's important, voluntarily um, banded together to exalt the Savior, encourage one another to obey the Scriptures, more on this later, equip the saints, evangelize the sinner, and observe the ordinances. That's what a church is. Body of baptized believers voluntarily band together. Now, most most churches band together around some distinctives. In other words, they band together around the way they believe church should function. And and here's the key. When we band together around the way we think church should function, we want to make sure that the way we think church should function is biblical. right? We're not just making this stuff up. We, We actually believe that the way we're doing things is biblical. And if they're are some, if there's a gap between what we're doing and what the Bible says, we want to we close that gap so we get more and more um, biblical. And so, just a couple of thoughts about the church that come from that definition, and these are blanks there in your notes. First of all, a church is people, not buildings. A church is people, not buildings. Uh, how many say, I'm going to church? And when you say, I'm going to church, you mean I'm going to the building where the church meets. How many are you guilty saying that? I do it all the time. okay. And I'm not trying to, to, to make you feel bad about that because I do it all the time. Even, even, even if I try not to, I do it all the time. We teach our kids uh, that the church is not the building, it's the people. But I do it all the time. We're going to church. Get in the car, we're going to church. And, and, and what I mean is we're going to the building where the church meets. But we understand that the church is not the building, right? Uh, the church is the people, the called out believers, the called out assembly. So sometimes the church is gathered. So tonight our church is gathered together. Sometimes, like tomorrow morning, the church will be scattered. We'll be all over, you know, Fort Walton Beach and Destin and and uh, the Emerald Coast area, Navarre. We'll be will be scattered out all uh, all over the place. Um, but we're still the church. Wherever you are tomorrow morning, you're still part of the church, right? Even though you're not in the building where the church gathers together uh, to meet. So sometimes the church is gathered, sometimes it is scattered. I love this quote from Daryl Robinson. He writes, The church gathers for strengthening, scatters for service. It gathers for worship, it scatters for witness. It gathers in praise, it scatters in power. It gathers in fellowship, it scatters in faith, following its Lord. The church gathers to equip the saints and scatters to evangelize the sinner. So it's important that we get together. The Bible commands us to get together, Hebrews Hebrews 10.25. But it's also important that as we scatter, as we go about our daily lives, daily routines, daily responsibilities, that we are being the church and reaching out to others. So a church is people, not buildings. Secondly, church is God's idea. The preacher didn't come up with church, okay? It's God's idea. God's the one that developed the idea of the church and, and brought the church into existence. Over in Matthew 16, verse 18, um, Jesus is speaking to Peter, who, under the inspiration of God or the revelation from God, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Who do others say that I am? And the Bible says that that a, a special revelation was given to Peter. He cries out, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Jesus says, You're right, Peter. And upon this rock, which I believe is the statement of faith, upon this rock I will build my church. And so Jesus uses that word church there in Matthew. I believe that's the first time it's used in the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus is saying, I'm building a I'm, I'm building a kingdom. And the local expression of those, of, of uh, local expressions of that kingdom, will be local churches, local assemblies of believers. So, church is God's idea, which leads to the next statement: the church is precious to God. The church is precious to God. Uh, look over in Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-eight. This is Paul speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's saying bye to them. It's a very emotional moment. He was very close to these elders in Ephesus. He was there for two years. And in Acts 20, 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, leaders, to care for... The church of God, which he obtained or which he purchased with his own blood. So how valuable is the church to Jesus? He shed his blood for the church. His precious blood. He shed his blood for the church. And and to drive that point home a little bit further, over in Ephesians 5, the Bible says that the the church is the, the bride of Christ. And so that means that the church is precious to the bridegroom. And the bridegroom is Jesus Now, I've heard this through the years um, more often than I want to, but but I've heard people kind of make this statement. Hey, I'm I'm into Jesus. I'm not into the church. Or "I'm I'm into Jesus. I'm not into organized religion, something like that. And my response to that is the church is the bride of Christ. So, I mean, what if you came to me and said, Hey, Wade, I think you're cool. Don't can't stand your wife. Well, we're not going to be friends, right? Like we're a package deal. You can't like say I'll have Wade and not Claire, or Claire and not Wade. We're we're a we're a package. We're a package deal, and you can't say Jesus, I like you, I don't like your bride. It's not how it works. The church is the bride of Christ, precious to the Lord, and so if it's precious to the Lord, it ought to be precious to us. And those are just some some foundational thoughts about the church now. What are the purposes of the church? We saw this in our definition. I want to elaborate just a little bit. Purposes of the church. What is the church to be about? Number one, exalting the Savior. Exalting the Savior. Over in Matthew 28, the Bible says that we are to make disciples and baptize them. And then to teach these followers of Jesus how to observe the commandments of Christ. So one of the things we do as a church is we we help each other, we encourage each other to, to obey Jesus, right? Well, what did Jesus say are the greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we're going to be the church, for sure we want to, we want to keep that foundational command, that most important commandment of loving God. That means that, that, that what we do as a church is we get together together to exalt Him, to praise Him, to tell Him that we love Him, to draw closer to Him, to experience His presence, to experience His work in our lives. We are here to exalt the Savior. A church ought to be about that, about lifting up the name of Jesus. Also, and I just kind of said this, but we're to encourage one another to obey the Scriptures. Look over in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that verse basically tells us we're commanded to get together. Somebody says, the Bible say I have to go to church. Yes, it does. It's right there in verse 25. But... Uh, notice here that there's a purpose for us gathering together. It's not just to go through the motions and say, I checked my box and went to church today. The purpose of us gathering together is, is, to, is, is to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to do good works, to obey, to do what God tells you to do, to be about the things of God. Uh, we need to be um, about that. Um, 1 Timothy Uh, 3.15 says this. Let me read it for you. 1 Timothy 3.15 He says, I'm writing that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we find the truth of what it means to know God and what it means to serve God uh, in the church. And we need to be about encouraging one another to obey the scriptures. In other words, when we When we gather and then we scatter, when we are scattering, we ought to be more more set on obeying Jesus than when we first gather together. I mean, there ought to be something that happens in our gathering that encourages us to go out and live for Jesus. Uh, Third is edification of the saints. Edify the saints. That's the third purpose of the church. Look over in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11. Paul writing here says, He gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So he gave these different offices to the church to function in different ways, but he gave them as a gift to the church. And what was their role to be? Look what it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, till we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ. And so when I say edify the saints, I mean that the church's leaders are to help the, the church members to be built up in Christian growth. They should they should be maturing under the ministry of their leaders. He says there in Ephesians, so that they're no longer, verse 14, children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So so leaders are to equip the saints to grow, to become more spiritually stable, so they cannot be swayed by False teaching, false worldviews, false doctrines. There ought to be a growth uh, where you are becoming more like Jesus as your leaders help help you to grow, to edify you. And then service. You're, you're growing, you're serving there in the body of Christ, building up the body of Christ, equipping the saints, it says, for the work of ministry. So, so pastors like me, our job, according to the Bible, is to equip you... To do the work. Does that mean that pastors don't do the work? Of course not. Of course, we we, we want to lead by example. But it does mean that the responsibility is with the body of Christ. And this is a big deal because I believe, because of the church growth movement that really took off in the 80s and into the 90s and the early 2000s, um, church staffs, as churches got bigger and bigger, mega churches were proliferated. Um, church staffs became very, very specialized. Very, very specialized. You had a you had a you had a church staff member for everything, right? You heard me joke about this before, maybe, but I said, you know, some churches had a, you know, a uh, seventh grade girls youth minister for left handers. You know, it's just like very specific, you know, very specific roles. And, and what happened? And, and I don't think this was intentional, but kind of what happened through that whole movement is. The church said, We've hired people to do this. We've hired hired the the work out, right? We got got specialized staff members doing everything in the life of this church. We got, you know, we got bowling alleys and we got you know cafes and we got these ministries and this program and we got staff members everywhere. And go, staff members, go. And in a very subtle way, maybe not even subtle way, but, but in a way, things shifted. And, and I believe the church really settled into a higher gun mentality. Like, go preacher, go. We're cheering you on, right? Do the work. But this verse says, it's really the exact opposite. The pastor is to equip the saints to do the work. To edify, to build up, to... Uh, to help the church to grow. And so, one of the purposes of the church is to edify the saints that when churches come together, they gather together over a period of time, there should be a, a building up of the body of Christ. It should be getting stronger and healthier and more effective and efficient in ministry. And then, of course, evangelizing the sinner. Of course, the church is called to be light, to be salt. To be witnesses, Acts 1-8, he says to the um, believers, uh, his disciples who would lead the the church on the day of Pentecost and forward, he says, you will be my witnesses, you will testify of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so uh, the church has the job of telling people about Jesus. And this is very, very clear in the Great Commission. Over in Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Okay, that means you tell people about Jesus. You share the gospel so they can hear of how they can be saved. And then they can give their lives to Jesus and become followers of Jesus, become disciples of Jesus. So when he says, go and make disciples, he's saying, go tell people about Jesus so they can follow me. So what he's saying. Then you baptize them. And then... He says, "Teach him to observe everything I've commanded you, which includes the command to make disciples." Does that make sense? So we can't say we got missionaries for that, and we got, you know, preachers for that, and we got my Bible study teacher does that. No, we got deacons. No, no. The Bible says that we are all supposed to obey all the commands of Christ, even making disciples, being witnesses. So we are to share. Our faith. I'll talk some more about that on Sunday morning. But we are to, to share our faith with others. Evangelizing the sinner. Telling them. The word evangelize means to share good news. To let people know, hey, we're far from God. We've sinned against God. God is holy. We deserve punishment. But Jesus came and took your punishment for you. You can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with God because God loves you. That's why he sent his son. So it's good news. We can evangelize the sinner. And then uh, we gather to observe the ordinances. We gather to observe the ordinances. Matthew 28, he says, when someone becomes a disciple, you baptize them. 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking to the church in Corinth. He says you need to get together in the right way, but when you get together, he says you need to get together and um, celebrate the Lord's Supper communion, taking the body and the cup in remembrance of me. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus instituted this in the upper room on the night when he was... Betrayed, And Paul uh, helps us understand this is an ordinance that the church is to, is to be about, to observe the ordinances um, together. So the two ordinances given to the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now there are some groups out there, this is just interesting, there are some groups out there that believe foot washing is the third ordinance. That church ought to practice the, the, the ordinance of foot washing. Um, I believe that was... Uh, Jesus giving an example of service, of humble service, and the reason I don't believe it was an ordinance for the church to carry on is because you don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament. Like you don't see the church in Ephesus practicing the ordinance of foot washing, or the church in Corinth, or the you know you just don't see that as a as a as a practice. Now there's nothing wrong if if you're in a certain setting and uh, you know in a, maybe in a ceremonial sense or um, you know. in some group you're in, if if you have a foot washing ceremony, nothing wrong with that. But I don't believe it is a um, it is an ordinance that the church is to practice on and on and on. But baptism and the Lord's supper are now the ordinances are symbolic in nature. This is a big deal, and this is one of the things that makes Baptist Baptist. Okay, the ordinances are symbolic in nature. So we we believe and teach that baptism is a symbol, outward symbol of what happens in someone's life inwardly when they are saved. You know, the Bible says in Romans 6 that when someone is saved, the old self dies. They're raised to walk in newness of life. And baptism is a symbol, a very important symbol, but a symbol of that. And Jesus said, "Do it." It's an act of obedience. But I believe it becomes after a person's conversion. I do not believe it co- a completes a person's conversion. The Bible is very, very clear, Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how you're saved. Placing your faith in, in the finished work of Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Baptism is a step of obedience that comes after a person is converted. It's a symbol, okay? Very, very important. And so the, the, the ordinances are symbolic in nature. That's baptism. Lord's Supper, again, is symbolic in nature. There are groups out there, denominations out there, that believe when you take the elements of communion, bread, uh, the, 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 the wine, the cup, whatever, um, that, you, that the elements actually become the body of Christ. And that's called transubstantiation. Um, and that is a, a prevalent view Um, but here's the reason I don't believe that. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, take eat, this is my body, do this which is broken for you, which be broken for you, do it in remembrance of me. He was actually there in the room with it. His body was there. It wasn't in the bread. The bread was symbolic of his body would be broken. The cup was symbolic of his blood that would be shed, but he was right there in the room with them. The bread did not become his body. His body was there, already there in that room. And so I don't believe that uh, Lord's Supper is a, a, a that a transubstantiation happens at the moment we take communion. But it is a very, very important picture uh, of the fact that Jesus' body was broken. He suffered uh, physically for us. His body was broken on our behalf when He was beaten and died on the cross. And His blood was shed. The cup pictures the blood. His blood was shed so our sins could be forgiven. Our sins could be washed away. and And these remind us symbolically of the price Jesus paid. And Jesus made it very, very clear. Do this, practice this ordinance in remembrance of me. It's to teach us, it's to remind us what Jesus did for us. I, I love the old hymn. And I actually asked Daniel to sing it uh, last Lord's Supper uh, time we had. But the psalm the, the that says, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. And the Lord's Supper leads us to Calvary. So we don't forget, I don't know why, I don't know why. You and I have a tendency to forget important things like that. I mean, we get busy, you know, and we get caught up in life and trials and troubles. And before we know it, we're just distracted and we're not thinking about, that which is ultimate, that which is of most importance, that Jesus, the Son of God, actually died on the cross in our place. And the Lord's Supper brings it back to our consciousness, brings it back to the front of our heart and minds to remind us what Jesus Christ did. Uh, so it's very important that we observe the um, ordinances. Uh, just a quick just a quick bit of information. The Bible does not tell us how often to observe the Lord's Supper, um, we do it basically quarterly. To be really honest with you, we we probably need to do it a little bit more. I'm I, I'm I'm I I love the Lord's Supper. It's a special time, and we may up that a little bit more in in the the coming days. Um, but the Bible didn't tell us how many times to do it; just that we ought to do it. Um, I, some churches uh, take communion every Sunday. Uh, again, this is. I, this is my personal preference and opinion on this. I'm not this is not from Sinai, okay? But for me, taking the Lord's Supper every week, it would it would begin to lose its significance for me. It would become just a a step of something I do that's religious, and it would be hard for me to focus in and and really remember. The, the broken body, shed blood of Christ. And so, you know, I, I think it needs to be less than every week, but maybe more than once a quarter. I don't know. We'll, we'll work on that. Um, it's just such a special time. So, um, the ordinances remind us continually of the gospel. Remind us continually of the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And there's a uni- unifying factor in that as well. We, when, we, when we cheer on someone's being baptized, we get together and observe the ordinance, there's a unifying factor. You remember uh, right after we shut things down for COVID in 2020? In do you remember we did the Lord's Supper online? You remember that? We kind of sent out an email. We're like, okay, listen, get your stuff, get your stuff together, get some bread and some juice together. And I was right here in this room. It was I think it was me and Aaron. <laughs> Aaron had the camera. And, uh, and, and I was here by myself. Jeff was in there. Jeff had sang, I think. And we, um, we, I just led on the video, you know, take the, drank the cup and ate the bread and people were following along home. And even though we were scattered because of COVID, there was a, I heard so much feedback. There was a unifying factor in that. We're still, we're still together. We're still the church. We're still together, taking the Lord's supper together. So, the ordinances are, are, are of utmost uh, importance. Um, let's go on very quickly to church government. I'm going to do this quickly, which is easier said than done. Um, but when I say church government, I mean how does a church function? How does it make decisions? How, how is leadership carried out? How does it uh, move forward? What, 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 it, what is our church government? Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about the biblical offices of the church. There are only two biblical offices of the church. Okay, The first is pastor slash elder. You could put slash bishop. Okay? Um, there are three words that are applied to the same office. One is episkopos, which is the idea of overseer, or sometimes translated bishop. Uh, presbyteros, where we get the word uh, Presbyterian from. Presbyteros is the word for elder, which I believe speaks of someone's spiritual um, maturity um, and leadership over others. Another word that's used of the same office is the word poimain, which is where we get the word pastor from, shepherd, pastor. Okay, And I'm going to show you that those three terms are used of the same office. They're not talking about three different offices. So let, me, let me show you this. Uh, look, over in, uh, look over in Acts 20. We were in Acts 20 earlier. Look in Acts 20. There are a couple different places we could do this. Verse uh, seventeen He says, um, now, in, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. That's the word presbyteros. So these are the folks coming, elders, all right? Then he starts to talk to them, and look what he says uh, in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks. So he's speaking there of their role as pastor, right, shepherd. And then he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. That's the word um, Um, Episcopos, where we get word Episcopalian from. Episcopos. So again, all three terms, pastor, elder, overseer, all used of the same office. Let me show you another place very quickly. Um, Look in uh, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. New Testament book of Titus in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul saying to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, there's that presbyteros, in every town, as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, same word, or same office, overseer is episkopos, okay, uh, as God's steward must, uh, must be above Reproach, and so again, those same words are used of the same office, and so one of the offices is is what I call pastor, elder, overseer. Okay, all three Greek words speak of the same office. Um, So let's just bring it to our to our situation. So I am a pastor. Okay, I am an elder. I am an overseer. All three terms apply to me. Jeff is a pastor. He is an elder. He is an overseer. All three terms apply to him and our other um, ministerial staff. Um, called by God, set apart by the church through the laying on of hands. That's one office in church, pastor, elder, um, overseer. Um, but please don't call me bishop. Okay, all right, now. The next office is deacon. 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 Bible's very clear on this. Acts 6 is the the foundation of the deacon ministry. Uh, You know that passage, probably. Um, The apostles are having a hard time keeping everybody happy. There's a debate between the uh, Hebraic widows and the Hellenistic widows, and they thought one group thought they were getting shafted. And so Peter said, We gotta have some help. So he said to the church, uh, name, uh, name folks from among you who are men full of the Holy Spirit and of faith that can serve and help us with this so we can focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so that's when the first deacon body was chosen, Acts 6. Over 1 Timothy 3, right after you see the, the qualifications for an elder, pastor, overseer, you see right after that the qualifications for a deacon. And so those are the two offices in the church, given to the church to serve and to lead. We'll talk some more about that in just a moment. Now, how is the church supposed to make decisions? How how is that supposed to happen? Um, The Bible doesn't give us a real specific playbook about, you know, form this committee and do this and meet here and do that. But the Bible does give us some overarching principles about how we make decisions in a church, how leadership happens and how the congregation is a part of that process. But before we get to that, you need to understand there are three primary types of church government. Okay? in de- denominations. There are three primary types of church government. Most fit under one of these these headings. And if you were in the new member orientation on Sunday, I'm sorry. Okay, you've already heard this, so you have to just hear it again, but please act interested. All right. So, three primary forms of church government. First is hierarchical. Hierarchical. H I E R. <laughs> A-R-C-H-I-C-A-L. H-I-E-R A-R-C-H-I-C-A-L. Hierarchical. And you see this in Roman Catholicism. You see this in uh, Episcopalians or Anglicans. There is a there is a a layer, there are layers of leadership. So what that look usually looks like, is you have a local congregation that has a priest or a rector or, or someone leading uh serving, ministering to that local congregation, then over a group of those folks, and usually a geographical area, you have someone that's like a bishop. Uh, You see this in Methodism as well. Uh, You have a bishop that is uh, leading that group of pastors or rectors. And then above them, there's another layer of leadership, something like archbishop or or superintendent or some other title given. And, uh, And there's hierarchical. And so... Uh, churches are being led from the top down, and so the organization, the hierarchical organization, uh, can. And, and It's different based on different de- denominations, but, but ultimately, the, the the hierarchical organization can can determine what that church does, like who their pastor is going to be, or whether they, you know, um, buy a piece of property, or whether they build a building. The church. Again, it depends on the denomination. Some churches have a lot of um, say so in that, uh, and they kind of work with the, the hierarchical structure. Um, but but this is a structure of leadership uh, of church government that we see um, in many denominations. Uh, second one is elder rule, which is which you see in Presbyterian uh, life. Elder rule. And this sometimes has a hierarchical aspect, but elder rule is you have a board of elders um, that lead the church, and they basically just make the decisions for the church. And the church, uh, the church, you know, trusts them and and uh, maybe affirms them in different ways. But the elders are making the decisions for the church. And sometimes there's even uh, again depending upon the denomination, there are there's a board of elders that are over groups of elder local elders, and and they help to. Make decisions with uh, different local churches. That that is um, elder rule. You see that in Presbyterianism and others as well. Um, Baptists have historically been congregational in church government, congregational, which means that um, a local church is autonomous. There's no one above us telling us what to do. Okay, um, and so you need to understand we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But when when you came to call a new pastor. The Southern Baptist Convention didn't tell you who your pastor was going to be. The church formed a pastor church committee. I see some of you out there that are on that committee. Formed a pastor church committee. Blame Bruce and his leadership. And and that pastor church committee, through a prayerful process, uh, came to a conclusion about who the next pastor should be, presented to the church. The church voted, and we moved from there. But there was no hierarchical body saying, this is going to be your next pastor. Or saying we think this certain staff we think just been here long enough we're moving him down the road. There's no that doesn't happen in Southern Baptist life. We are autonomous um, congregations. Okay, that's very important to understand. Congregation rule. The authority is 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 in the uh, ultimately in the congregation because and this is important. This is a Baptist distinctive. We practice or believe what's called soul autonomy, which means that if you are a Christian. Um, you can go directly to God. You don't have to come through a pastor. You don't have to come through a priest. Uh, you can go directly to God and talk to Him anytime you want. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And that's great. And you've heard me say this before like, I don't want you coming confessing your sins to me. I don't like, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to do that, right? Go to God, okay? You know him personally. Go to him and talk to him about what's going on in your life and confess your sins to him. Or if you have a need in your life, you know we'll pray with you and pray for you. But you can go directly to God and ask God to work in your uh, life. And that also means that if you've got a decision to make, like should we, uh, you know, should we, uh, should we build a new building? Well, we think that you ought to pray about it. Okay. And really pray. I mean, really pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. And we believe the Holy Spirit can lead individuals. And we believe that that through a process of good information and prayer, that the church will most likely come to the same conclusion. If we're all, we all have the same Holy Spirit, He's going to lead us in the in the same way. There are outliers. There are times it goes haywire. Okay, but that's how it's supposed to work. That you go to God and ask for His direction. And, and you exercise that in the life of the congregation. So what about leadership? What about pastors? What about staff members? What about directors? What, I, mean, I mean, how's that supposed to function in concert with congregational authority? Well, here's the statement I want to give you. And I think this is very, very important. And I believe we need to stay balanced here because when you get out of balance, you get into trouble. Okay. And again, if you were in new member orientation, I'm sorry you're hearing this again. But look there in your notes. A church is to have, this is a biblical statement, I believe, strong leadership with congregational authority. Strong leadership with congregational authority. So, um, turn over to Matthew 18. I want to show you this very quickly. Matthew 18. Verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So that's personal reconciliation, okay? That that ought to be happening in the life of a congregation. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so you go back with a group and say, Hey, this hasn't been reconciled. Can we can we can we deal with this? And you go back with two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? What's it say? The church. The church has final authority to deal with somebody who's acting a fool. That's what it this? Someone that will not reconcile. Someone who will not uh, listen to others. Someone who's going to do their own thing, go their own direction. It says if they will not reconcile, if they stay in their uh, their their stubbornness then you can take it to the church and say, Hey, we need the church's authority to say this person needs to be reprimanded. Or whatever the case may be. Sometimes even removed from a congregation. Uh, that's called church discipline. And, and the Bible teaches that that is something that can happen in the life of the church. It ought to be very, very rare. But it's something that can happen. Um, so again, what I'm showing you there is the church is the one that has this, this authority. Now look over in Acts um, Acts 15. Acts 15. Acts 6 is another example where he says, Choose from among you men to serve as deacons. And so again, the church is the one who had the authority to, to nominate those deacons and raise them up for service. But look in Acts 15. This is the Jerusalem Council. They're trying to deal with what to talk to Gentiles about and how the Gentiles who are getting saved are supposed to interact with the Jewish law. And it's a really important council, and very important decisions are made. And they come to this conclusion in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So they come to the right conclusion. You're not saved by the law. You're saved by grace. But they write a letter to help explain this um, to the Gentile churches, the Gentile Christians. And look what it says in verse 22. I think this is a really important verse for, for church leadership, for church government. It seemed good to the apostles and elders, that's strong leadership, with who? The whole church. The church affirms, the church approves, the church weighs in to say, we agree with the leadership direction set by our leaders and we think we ought to move forward. And they write this letter, they send the letter out, and I believe that's an example of a strong leadership, uh, congregational uh, authority. Um, and, and we need that. Hebrews 13 speaks of, of, of obeying your leaders. There's an aspect where leaders are supposed to have a level of authority in a church to lead and, and point people to Jesus. And so strong leadership, congregational authority. Now, now, look at me. If that statement gets out of balance, you get in trouble. Okay, I share this uh, with the, the group um, on Sunday. But uh, I have a, a, good, a great friend in pastoral ministry, and he was at a church, and they needed a coffee pot for the Sunday school area. And he, and he bought it. He, he used church money and bought the coffee pot. It's a sm- smaller church. And um, the next business meeting, someone stood up and said, who bought the coffee pot? And the pastor said, well, I, I bought the coffee pot. And next question, well, who authorized the buying of the coffee pot? And it, it got this whole thing. Twenty minutes later, they're talking about the coffee pot. And so the pastor Eventually took out a $20 bill and put it on the, the Lord's Supper table and said, I just bought the coffee pot. Business meeting over, right? Okay. Now that's 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 a funny example, but that's kind of silly, isn't it? That 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 you have a congregation that is distracted by coffee pots. Okay? Um and so how do you how do you manage that? Well the church votes on a budget, right? A plan to how we're gonna spend money, and then the leaders of the church purchase things, buy things under the guidelines of that budget. So there's a budget area to buy coffee pots so we don't have to fight about it in a church conference. Amen? You've approved the big picture. You've approved the budget. You've approved that as a church. You've heard it and voted on it, all of that good stuff. And and then you want your leaders to lead at that point and to lead in concert with the plan, the financial plan, and to lead in concert with casting vision and, and making decisions, all that kind of thing. Uh, but the, I think there's a balance needs to be a balance of strong leadership congregational authority if you if you if, if the seesaw goes all congregational authority you're fighting over coffee pots. if it goes the other direction and the pastors a dictator uh, autocratic leader you get in all kinds of trouble there. then you get out of uh, someone leading with no accountability and that's not good either. So I believe we need to have this strong leadership with congregational authority I believe that's a biblical way for a church to function that would be a a um, congregational form of church government. Now, let me say this. Everybody look at me. This is important. Every one of these church government types, the flesh can get involved, and it can go haywire. It don't matter how good your church government is, how good your bylaws are, how good your policy Listen, if people start acting a fool, it can go haywire quick. I don't care what your church government is. All right? So, so what makes congregational government work, I believe, work well are spirit-filled Christians that love each other, love the Word of God, let the Word of God be their guide, and are trying to keep their eyes on the lost and tell people about Jesus. So um, that's what I mean by congregational uh, government. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.